You are listening to Filmmaking Reviews Podcast, an interview with, with me, Catherine Tosco, editor of FilmmakingReview.com. So tell us about um, Charles Shaw, the speaker and documentary maker, and how you came to be who you are today. Oh, wow. That's a. (laughs) (laughs) How many hours have I got? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say 20 minutes probably won't cover it. (laughs) Um, If you'll permit me a minute of like shameless self promotion, I'll say that um, uh, my book, Exile Nation uh, Drugs, Prisons, Politics, and Spirituality, covers most of that story. And it's what kind of brought me into the social justice realm. And, you know, basically it was in reaction to um, a lot of things in my formative years, uh, including a pretty crippling addiction early on in my life. And then my experience with the criminal justice system, uh, that really kind of turned me on to, you know, dealing with um, many broad social justice issues. But I, I tend to, like, gravitate towards defending the kind of disenfranchised groups and subgroups and masses and such, people affected by the drug war and things like that. And it was in my work uh, doing an oral history on the drug war that I came across, uh, stumbled really across this idea of um, mass deportation of immigrants from the United States. And and then by proxy, I've understood that this is a worldwide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And um, this film is about what you call the plastic people, isn't it, on the border of America? Yeah, this was, uh, one of the, again, one of those beautiful divine intervention stories that just kind of fell into my lap. Uh, I wasn't looking for this story, but I was <clears throat> looking for something uh, about the Mexican drug war. You know, this, I started investigating this kind of uh, angle during 2010 and 11, kind of at the height of the violence that was going on in Mexico. And uh, I had a friend that was living in Tijuana. There's actually a group of friends that live down there um, because there is a, a, a burgeoning Ibogaine community down there. Right, yeah. Ibogaine, yeah. And, uh, you know, Ibogaine's not legal in the United States, but you can practice with it in Mexico. So there's a lot of, you know, addiction uh, specialists and clinics and such down there. One of the people connected to this community was the person who turned me on to the story. Uh, his name's Chris Bava, and he's also mm-hmm. a photographer, and his, his photos are featured in this. But we were look, kind of looking for a Mexican drug war story, and he just kind of started to tell me about all of these, you know, essentially Americans that he was meeting uh, in Tijuana that were homeless, that were in the streets, that were destitute, and that had been deported from the country. Why do you think that... Uh America in particular has such strong uh, laws around borders. I mean, it just seems from, say, a European point of view, where our borders are all open and we travel very freely around a big mass of land. Why do you think that America has got so uh, paranoid, basically? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. And I would say that the paranoia is actually global. I think that it's there's particular paranoias in the United States that are, you know, egregious in their own nature. And, you know, our fear of 
brown people is one of them. Mm. And, you know, if you notice, we don't have a similar border along Canada. We just have one along Mexico. And uh, so, I mean, you know, one of the things that I hope to try to communicate in the film is that um, however you want to see it as a problem, reaction, or solution, um, Mexico became one of the kind of like uh, largest victims of the post 9-11 era and of all of the laws and cultural shifts that happened after 9-11, Mexico really suffered the most. Why do you um, think that is? Um, perhaps you, because we've got an international audience, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think the simplest way to put it is that um, there was a, you know, a global economic system that was imposed after the Cold War ended um, by the, you know, 1999 and Seattle and such. We understood that this economic system was very, very problematic and it was causing pretty big unrest and it was looking to continue to cause this kind of unrest and part of that was all of this you know dislocation because of globalization people being turned off their lands mig migrating to large urban centers looking for work you know Tijuana is one of you know the prime examples of that it became a huge metropolis because of NAFTA and because of the mig the northward migration mm -hmm. of uh, Mexicans you know to looking for work Yes. And um, so <clears throat> what ends up happening is that during the Clinton era, uh, there's this massive free flow of Mexicans coming into the country because of NAFTA. And, you know, the Mexican-American population swells to over 30 million. And the illegal population is estimated at like about 12 million. Wow. Uh, this is a huge economic and political force. Mm -hmm. And... They, you know, just kept coming and kept coming because conditions in Mexico deteriorated and conditions in the United States were significantly better. Uh, so they had to find a way to stop this. And 9-11 was the perfect pretext, it was the perfect, uh, you know, excuse to now draw all of these, you know, new borders, build new border walls, enhance border security and crack down on, you know, illegal immigration by connecting it to crime and connecting it to terrorism and all of this other stuff. So later when the Mexican drug war came in, that was just really to kind of like continue to demonize Mexicans and immigrants and to continue to justify greater and greater expenses spent to build larger border walls and to, you know, arm people and have border checkpoints, which now extend a hundred miles in inland from the border now right okay mm. yeah, yeah so i mean it was a whole cultural shift that happened around this idea of america's economy shifting um i mean i i think it's pretty safe to say that the people in charge understood that the america american economy was going to drastically change that our standard of living was going to drop that other rising economies around the world were going to take a larger share that we used to hold i mean it's all pretty basic economics but, you know, in between is the human stories and what's happened and the victims of all of that. And um, this mass migration of cheap immigrant labor is, you know, the first to go. And so you talk a lot about um, surplus population in some of your talks that I was watching last night at Burning Man. Um, it, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this idea of um, drugs and surplus populations, which seems to be one of the themes in this documentary. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is also something that I, I've gone into pretty extensively in my first film, which is the um, Exile Nation Project, the oral history of the war on drugs. And I've written about it a, a lot as well because uh, it's a significant, you know, kind of obvious hiding in plain sight explanation for a lot of what's going on. Um, this has been kind of pigeonholed as a Marxist analysis, but it, it really isn't. It's just kind of pretty empirical yeah. and macro if you take a look at it. But what it, what it basically states is that, you know, when an economy expands, it brings in labor and it usually tries to bring in the cheapest labor. And that's historically been, you know, either slaves or, you know, second class citizens or immigrants. And, some, and often they're the same. Mm -hmm. um, but when an economy shrinks, when, uh, when an economy shifts, um, often there's many that are left behind in that transition. Mm -hmm. So when the United States went from a, you know, kind of a productive industrial economy to a kind of information service based economy, yeah. uh, so much of that urban that was based in the urban centers labor force uh, became unnecessary because th those jobs are not being done in Mexico and Japan and Korea and Taiwan and so mm -hmm. on and so on. Uh, so when you have that population that is no longer necessary, no longer employable, there aren't enough jobs for them, then what they become, as far as, you know, social planners see, is surplus population. They're essentially consumers that have nothing to produce. Mm -hmm. They have no purpose. They're yeah. just there, like mouths to feed. Mm -hmm. And they, they become what, what uh, is viewed as an intractable population that requires this kind of permanent management. Yeah. So they kind of treat them like children. Yeah. And um, it's all about kind of like um, trying to, uh, as effectively as they can, restrict and punish and manage and identify as many of them as possible. So this whole prison industrial complex arose um, partially as a way of uh, containing this underclass that had nothing to do and had no gainful work or prospects in life and who were kind of angry, but also because there's this, you know, this phenomenon called the replacement economy. Mm -hmm. uh, this happens all the time when the kind of general economy, the, the productive economy, the, uh, leaves or is offshored or collapses or what have you, and a black market economy comes in. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's almost always a vice economy. So it almost always involves drugs and yeah. alcohol, sex. And then there's a companion economy that grows up to fight this new, you know, scourge of vice that comes in. So it's like half the population goes into vice, and, you know, and the other half goes into the fight against the vice. Mm -hmm. And they usually can divide that among racial lines. So it's easy to kind of keep the camps together. Yeah, if you could explain that a little bit more, because that's a really interesting concept to me. Okay, well, uh, the simplest way to put it is that in most of the states around uh, the, the nation here in the U.S., um, the you know African Americans are concentrated primarily in the urban centers. Yeah, and the prisons are located in the kind of far-flung uh, uh, rural areas. Yeah. Uh, very far from the population centers. Yeah. And so, um, for example, in the state that I was incarcerated in, in Illinois, which is um, basically driven out of Chicago, which is the kind of great metropolis of the center of the country, 
Um, you know, there's 10 million people that live in Chicago. There's, you know, two point some million black folks that live there as the kind of majority. And um, they all get sent to these 28 odd prisons that are all around the rural areas of the state that used to be farming communities. Yeah. And yeah. In, in the cities, you'd have, in, you know, industry and in the, out in the rural areas, you'd have farming. And those are the two twin engines of the economy that used to power the Midwest. And they both kind of disappeared. Big Agro bought up all the family farms. And the, uh, the, the industrial economy went to Asia and to, you know, South America and such. So in, in comes, you know, the state and the federal government saying, okay, well, you know, um, your town is dying here, but what we'll do is we'll build a prison here and we'll give you all of this money to upgrade your infrastructure and your roads and your sewers and we'll give you these tax breaks and, and yada, yada, yada. So throughout the 80s and 90s and most of the first part of the Bush era, um, prisons were booming all over as a kind of an, another replacement economy to keep money flying through the community. Um, so when you were in prison, what was your experience of prison and the people that you were with? I know it's a kind of cliche, people say everyone says they're innocent, but you know, truly, um, what were people in prison for and do you think that a lot of them shouldn't have been in prison? Um, well, there's many classifications uh, when you get into the prison system based upon the crime that you committed. Uh, but the, you know, if I'm speaking in broad terms, mm -hmm. and this is definitely my experience as well, but you know, around 60% or so of all drug convictions—I mean, I'm sorry—of all um, uh, incarcerations are drug-related. Yeah. And they're all basically somehow drug connected. And that was my experience, definitely. I was in a minimum security prison that primarily dealt with drug offenders, low-level offenders. And then <clears throat> it was also a transition facility for people who had been in the system for you know, many years. And they had been in maximum security settings and needed to kind of get socialized again before they were released out into the world. So this is the closest thing that could come to socializing them was to put them in a minimum security prison where we were actually free to interact with each other. Right, okay. So yeah. when, when, when you're in um, that situation, I mean, when you made your documentary, you've met a lot of people that have been in these situations, haven't you, who have been kind of institutionalized by being deported. Um, so what, what kind of people did you meet? Could you tell us maybe about a couple of the people that are in your film? Yes, well, this is where the issues connect as well, uh, in that, um, you know, most of the people that I met that had been deported to Mexico had had some kind of interaction with the criminal justice system, and most of them was because of drug problems. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, say you've got, you know, you're a drug user and you get busted in the States, the, the issue that I focus on on my film is, is not just about this issue of illegal immigration, you know, whatever you want to call that. A lot of people, they have one image. And, and I'll answer your question by kind of setting it up and saying that, like, the image in the mind of most Americans is that there are these, you know, brown people that sneak across the border to take, to take jobs that, mm. that are otherwise meant for Americans. Uh, they steal from us. Uh, they steal our resources, they take free health care and all these things that they think we have in this country, which we actually don't. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they pay nothing, they contribute nothing, and they have no allegiance or loyalty to the United States. Well, this is um, true of a certain amount of migrant workers that are usually, you know, in the western part of the United States and in the southern part, particularly in California, that are involved in the farm economy. And yes, there's a lot of migrant workers that come here, they work 
Um, they're brought here actually to work illegally. They send all their money back to Mexico and that's what the government really has a problem with because there's yeah. none of that money circulating here. So when they're deported, you know, everybody feels justified. Yeah. Um, but what I'm talking about and what my film focuses on are people who emigrated to the United States years before with their families. People that grew up in the United States from the time they were very young, two, three, four years old, that lived there for 15, 20 years, but now in this post 9-11 kind of immigrant paranoia era are being rounded up and deported by the millions. Mm. And I, I mean that literally by the millions. And so even if your parents live in the United States or if you're a U.S. citizen and your parents aren't documented yet, but you've lived here for 20 years, it doesn't matter. There's no process or judge or any way for you to plead your case. If you are now arrested for any reason or stopped by a police officer, you're instantly cross-checked with a database. And if you're not a citizen, you're deported. Oh, it's wow. that simple. So, so many of these people have drug problems. So many of these people, that's how they get caught up in the criminal justice system or get arrested or get stopped. And then they end up in Tijuana and they have nothing. They're disavowed by the American government. They're disavowed by the Mexican government. And they're like Palestinians or boat people. You know, they're nationless people now. They're trapped at the border and they have nowhere to go. And not only are they trapped at the border, but they're trapped in the most dangerous ghetto on the border called Zona Norte, which is essentially a cartel retail zone. Um, and their life expectancy is very, very, very short. Mm. And did you feel safe when you were there? I mean, did you? No. no. Not at all. Did, what did you see when you were there that made you feel so in a dangerous position? Well, you have to understand, you know, Zona Norte is this ghetto that's on the border and it's, it, it abuts this kind of uh, cement river that is in between the United States and Mexico. And um, that river is the sewer of TJ, of wow. Tijuana. Now, that's where most of these deportees live because there's nowhere else for them to live. They live in the river, in the sewer drains. And it, it's pretty harrowing. Um, and then in the streets is, you know, this area where all of the drug cartels, you know, work out of. And so it's constantly, uh, you know, subject to violence between the cartels and on also the police, which who work hand in hand with the cartels in Mexico, by the way. Yeah. Um, they're there and they the, the attitude of the Mexican government and the Mexican police towards these people is that they're not Mexicans and that they're, you know, useless drug addicts, which in Mexico, they don't believe that addiction is a disease. They don't believe it can be cured. So they basically just see them as parasites. So when, when you were um, filming, you must have been thinking about now when you're, you're how are you going to raise awareness with this documentary? Um, so Really, what are you hoping to achieve with the documentary? Who do you want to communicate this, this issue to? And how do you want to set about that with your campaign on Indiegogo? Well, um, the campaign on Indiegogo is really geared towards uh, getting us our finishing funds. You know, we were blessed to have a uh, foundation grant um, fund most of the production of this over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is the, the Tedworth Charitable Trust, which is a branch of the Sainsbury Foundation based out of the UK, and they've been uh, very good to me and uh, my projects over the last four years. 
Um, so uh, through that foundation and through the kind of fiscal sponsor, which is the Open Democracy Group, uh, a publication based out of London that I, I serve as an editor for, um, we're kind of hoping to use this as the base of a human rights campaign. And, um, you know, whatever money we can make from this, and, and the film industry is in a really interesting place now historically, so... There's not a lot of money to be made, you know, in, in films, particularly those of a political social justice nature. Um, uh, but if we can make any money, uh, what we would like to do is to set up an organization and or work with a couple of organizations we feature in the film um, to try to create a kind of um, not only like an awareness that this is happening, of course, because this is a consequence of not only our drug policy, but also our immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And we have a president now just starting his second term who deported more immigrants in his first term than George Bush did in two, which wow. is a little frightening. <laughs> yes, it's a little frightening. Um, but, you know, there's you know, 30 million Mexican-Americans, and this is an issue that is touching, you know, billions of lives as far as migration is concerned. Um, but there, there really is nothing for these people once they cross the border. They're literally stripped of everything that they have, all of their possessions, identification, and everything, and they're just spit across the border. So we want to create a cushion, a pillow for them to land on when they cross. There's 400 a day that are dumped into Tijuana. I mean, it's a staggering number. Yeah. And we need some way for them to be registered so that their families know that they're there, so that they know what, you know, there's not really resources available, but at least they know where to go and what they can do. Mm -hmm. and start some kind of process of getting them identification so that they can work and they can provide a living for themselves. Sure. So if people want to get involved with your campaign, um, I'm going to put the link up for your campaign, but um, if you could just briefly, before I, I let you go, um, tell us about the different things that you've got on offer, the prizes or well, rewards that you get on Indiegogo for your money. Um, well, I'll be honest with you, I've been involved in a lot of Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns and, you know, a lot of them pro give a lot of like perks and very few of them ever deliver on them because they, they often don't factor them into the money they're raising. So yeah, sure. <laughs> with mine, um, we also believe in this new media, you know, this new model of filmmaking. So people who contribute to our finishing campaign will be listed as, you know, crowdfunding producers, you know, specifically set aside from everyone else. Um, we're also, for larger contributions, we've got, you know, co-producing and executive producing slots that are um, available to people who want to give larger contributions. Uh, we're also giving away, you know, signed movie posters from all the producers and uh, some of the photography uh, that's featured in there by Chris Bava, who um, I should mention, um, uh, he's a key figure in the film. He's, it's actually kind of his crusade to help these deportees. And he and his wife and his brother were killed in a car crash last October mm. before the film was completed. Right. And so this is also kind of like this film is really uh, to honor his legacy and his work, uh, you know, for posterity. It's become more poignant since then. For sure. Yeah. Okay, well, what I will do is put everything up for our readers underneath your podcast so that we can get you to where you need to be. So you're looking for $10,000, is that right, on your Indiegogo? Eleven. Eleven. Okay, well, we want to make it more than that anyway, so we'll see yeah. what we can do. <laughs> anyway.